Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. And today we're joined by Paul Doherty, the author of An Uncomplicated Life, a father's memoir of his exceptional daughter, and his wife Carrie. This is a book I am so happy to have found. I believe that it belongs on everyone's bookshelf. I think it's a gift that you can give to your friends and family when you receive a diagnosis It is a story that changes the narrative that we are usually fed about what Down syndrome is. It is beautiful. It is honest. It is about expecting instead of accepting. And it's one of those if we knew then moments where if I knew this book existed, I would have picked it up and read it and let it plant just some really great seeds. So welcome, Paul Doherty. And his wife, Carrie. Paul and Carrie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. It did take me a little while uh, to get to the book, but when I was actually, you know, I'm a little cautious sometimes because reading someone's story is such an intimate thing. One thing that I've discovered on this journey is because as a community, what we experience, like when in your chapter, when you talk about praying out loud, we have a reaction to the diagnosis of Down syndrome without even knowing what Down syndrome is. There's just this reaction that's really not based in truth, because I, I do believe it's not based in truth. I, I think that we all have our challenges. We have two children. Uh, we worry equally about both of the children. In in some ways, our experience with Liam is a little easier because we are given that list right at birth because we are meant and made to worry and fight and advocate as, as soon as their little feet hit the air or even before that. Hit the ground. Yeah. Well, no, but you're not going to put a baby on a ground. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's why I said hit the air. As soon as they, and sometimes before that, if we get receive a diagnosis um, before they're born. And so because of that, one thing that I learned early on, because we were introduced to a lot of stories that people said, oh, you have to read this, oh, you have to see that. And most of that was really heartbreaking. Most of that let me know that what I was about to embark upon was just horrible. And not only did we have a diagnosis that we had to deal with that. And then this was the bombardment of information. So because of that, I really uh, protected myself as to what stories I let in. And we determined to write our own story for, or for Liam to write his own story. So I am very trepidatious when, when I receive something because I do honor everyone's journey. And I think telling our stories are so important, but I also believe that story can impact, we can impact each other. And I was so happy when I finally just started to read your story because your story can impact others, but in such a beautiful way. Um, Paul, maybe you just tell us a little bit about your, yourself. About myself. Uh, I've been in the newspaper business for better or worse since 1979. And since I'm not a math major, maybe what, what's that? 21 and 20, 43 years, right? 21 and 22. Um, first couple of years, I covered county government in a rural county outside of Baltimore. I decided I didn't want to spend my life covering zoning meetings and sewer hearings. So I, I, the, uh, the opening came up to be the sports editor at this small paper, daily paper in Westminster, Maryland, and I took it. And I was the sports editor there for about three years. And from there, went to Norfolk, Virginia to cover the University of Virginia. Older parents might recall a guy named Ralph Sampson. I covered Ralph Sampson, who was a very tall basketball player at UVA. 
Michael Jordan was at North Carolina at the time. I got one-on-one -on -one interviews with Michael Jordan, who once apologized to me for being late. Sorry, sir, I'm late for the interview. I'm thinking, all right, kid, just don't do it again. And then Michael Jordan obviously went on to bigger and better things. We moved from Norfolk, my wife and I, to Dallas, Texas, where I worked at a paper that no longer exists, Dallas Times-Herald. And from Dallas, we moved to New York, where I worked at Newsday out on Long Island. And then in 1988, we moved to Cincinnati and, and decided that this is where we wanted to stay and and raise our kids. So that's what I've been doing ever since. I write a, a sports column three times a week. I, I write a blog on Cincinnati.com four days a week. And on, on Wednesday, I'm, I'm going to Los Angeles to cover the Bengals in the Super Bowl. So that, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. We, we, have, we have a son in addition. You might not know that, but we have a son in addition to Jillian. Kelly got married in October uh, in New York. He, he works for a publishing company in the city. His wife is a teacher at uh, what they call a, what, a magnet school, like a, a charter school. I'm getting coached by my wife, if, if you're wondering. Um, and, and, and that's it. And life goes on and life is, is pretty good. We did the Jillian book back in about 2015. Did fairly well right off the bat. That was a long time ago. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see that people are still interested in it. So here we go. Very interested in it, yeah. I wish we would have found it in 2015. Yeah, we, we could didn't. have used it. We, we really could have. Could have. Used it. Everything about Jillian's story is step by step. Things that we were told just take off the the plate for our son. Don't expect for that. Don't to expect, happen. and then that's you know, and you start the book with an introduction about teaching her to ride a bike, and automatically my ears perked because that's something that we still haven't mastered with Liam, and we have tried a few times, and it really wasn't something we had thought about until we had interviewed Chris Nitchik, who is an Ironman. But that was the most difficult thing for him. Yeah, riding the bike. So immediately, you know, you're talking about riding the bike. It's a beautiful metaphor also about raising a child when, you know, just knowing when to let go. So let's let's just talk about learning how to ride a bike. Well, um, Jillian took a lot of her cues from her older brother. Kelly's three years older than Jillian. And, and essentially, almost from the time she was born, she wanted to do what he did. And he rode a bicycle, obviously. Uh, we lived on a, a common drive of four houses with, with a, a drive off the regular lane. So it made uh, learning to ride a bike for Julian pretty convenient. We didn't have to worry about traffic. We didn't have to worry about potholes. We didn't have to worry about other people with their kids or dogs or whatever walking around. We, we had this little private lane. And, and Jillian uh, stated, I ride bike, which meant I want to ride a bicycle and we were never parents who would say no to anything that that either of our kids would want to try if, if you want to try something well sure as long as it's not you know illegal immoral or fattening right so we said sure Jillian we'll, we'll try it and it was a, a couple of months worth of of process on the common drive in which uh, Jillian would get on her bike, which, which was a comically small bike. I, th I think I, I wrote in the book that it was like one of those bikes that the clowns rode around the elephants in the circus. Yeah, it was smaller than that. Um, and she had a helmet, but her, she was so small that we had to stuff the helmet with stuff in the helmet so it wouldn't slide around and cover her face when she's trying to ride. Uh, but all that said, it was just a matter of, of doing in two months what most quote-unquote typical kids pull off in, in, in an afternoon same way of doing it same encouragement same step by step you know at, at the beginning I'd, I'd hold the back of her seat with with 10 fingers and and maybe a month uh, a week later it would be seven fingers and maybe a week after that it'd be five fingers or four and uh, eventually I would hold the bike with one finger obviously she couldn't see me because she's looking ahead and I'm behind her and it was sort of a, a common theme we'd get going and I'd hold the, the back of the seat and Jillian would ask me if I got if I had her dad you have me yeah I have you you know four fingers three fingers two fingers dad do I do you have me yes Jillian I will always have you uh and eventually uh 10 5 4 3 2 1 became none and and she rode down the lane by herself and, and 
that, that was it. That was just one of the things that she was able to do that, that uh, the so-called expert said she never would. You know, it requires a certain strength and balance coordination that kids with Down syndrome aren't supposed to possess. Well, we, we didn't listen to any of that. And that was, that was one of the early, not the early, but one of the, one of the biggest manifestations of not listening, not, not following what, what the experts tell us that Jillian can or cannot do. We always, to this day, we have always allowed Jillian to define Jillian. And that was just one of the bigger, bigger moments of definition in her young life. Was it any more uh, frightening teaching her to ride a bike than your son? No. I mean, it just took longer. Uh, it, it's kind of a metaphor for, for their entire lives. She's done everything almost that Kelly has done. It, it's just taken her a while, a while longer to do it. And in, in, in some respects, that kind of heightens the joy that you feel once it's done. I mean, given the work that you put into it, if, if you teach a typical child to ride a bike and, and that typical child is often running after a couple hours, that's great, proud of them. Um, but, but when you work two months to get a child to do the same thing and that child pulls it off, the, the feeling is different. When our daughter Sophia was born, one of the things I enjoyed so much was as she reached these milestones, it was a, a reminder to me or even just an acknowledgement of what every human does. Like when you see someone who's walking, when you hear someone speaking, I was like, oh my goodness, we did all of that to get to here. Then as they get older, those milestones come so much quicker that the, the appreciation maybe just wanes off. Like this is what they're supposed to do. This is what comes next. Quickly, yeah. Know. Sure. And then when Liam was born and we were going through these same milestones, I just enjoyed, I felt like I've enjoyed Liam's life a little more because I feel like life can go so fast that, you know, how many times is, Oh, I missed the first words. I stepped out of the house and the words were gone. You know, I, I, they, they, I missed the first steps, but they're, the journey of that was such a gift to because that's the celebration we all should actually have for every accomplishment and it is one of those things when i'm i'm thinking about both of my children that i enjoyed with both of them but i do feel like liam's life has been one that i've been able to celebrate mm -hmm. maybe a little and that is definitely not what they tell us coming out of the gate like there's no, there's no celebration put there for us. This, you taught her to ride a bike when she was 12. Is that, I believe, yeah, around 12. So that was around fifth or sixth grade. Fifth grade, maybe. How was her education? How was she supported in school up until that point? You do, you, you make reference to um, eight years of speech. And I love your honesty as to her broken sentences. Speech is something that we fight for really hard for Liam. There is a a stigma when if Liam talks in a broken sentence around anybody other than people who know him inside, I, I feel like I have to compensate. I feel like I have to um, bridge the gap or prove that he knows what he's doing. And so you find yourself like repeating what he said to people, but also just making up, making it okay. Right. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Just like, so I appreciate just the honesty of language, how language evolves and how we communicate. Because I, I noticed that I did speak about wanting to have a conversation with Liam that I'm now finding myself being able to do. But that's my want because Liam is communicating with me all along. I mean, he's talking to me. So that's, that's my want based upon what society tells me communication is. Mm -hmm. What was your experience then in the 90s as far as educating your daughter with Down syndrome? Well, we uh, we retained the same principles that we retained with everything else in our life, whether it was speech or, or riding a bike or, or being a cheerleader in the junior varsity dance team, you know, let her define herself. We, we never went into any activity, didn't matter what it was, that, that we didn't say that, that we, you know, we do, certainly never went into anything saying she can't or she probably won't. Or it was always, you know, expect, don't accept. And there's a, there's a notion of difference in, in, in those two statements. So it was, it was always, whether it was, you know, she did take like 10 years, right? 10 years of speech. Oh, yeah. 
10 years of speech. She did the occupational therapy and the physical therapy as well, but not nearly as much because we, we determined right away, and it was kind of a no-brainer, uh, if you had to use choose between the three therapies, speech would always be number one. We want her to be able to communicate. And, and so she did have that therapy. But you mentioned that you wanted, you find yourself sometimes trying to help Liam out. He's talking. I, I am guilty of that. My wife, Carrie, is not. And she never has been. From the time Jillian was trying to, to, to climb stairs, walk upstairs, I would help her. You know, Carrie would say, let her do it herself. With Jillian's speech, and I do it to this day, you know, tra translate for her a little bit, help her. And Carrie does not, you know, and, and people that know Jillian that are around Jillian, her coworkers, for example, uh, her friends, uh, family, th they all understand her perfectly because they're accustomed to, to speaking to her because we let her, at least her mother lets her. I, I tend sometimes to fall off that wagon, but I, as far as the speech goes, no, we just, we, we applied the same principles to, to speech as we applied to everything else in her life. Well, Paul, I'm kind of like you where I will, um, I don't know if it's explain Liam or just make sure it's clear, you know, make sure that I'm right there with him. And, and you know, <laughs> with any kid, you have to give them, just like when you get down to that one finger holding on the bike, you got to give them that space to fail possibly. That That's something that I have to deal with, that I'm dealing with, you know, all the time is like, I don't want him to, to fall flat on his face like any kid, but you got to let him do that sometimes. I... Lori, from the beginning, I mean, I think of when we just brought Liam home and it was the initial time where you're having people over to, to see the new baby. Uh, it wasn't something we announced that Liam had Down syndrome on social media or something. That wasn't something that we did. So when we would have friends or family even come, well, not family as much because they would know, but friends come over, I, I would go to Lori and go, we, we got to tell him that Liam has Down syndrome. Like we have to make this announcement that, okay, by the way, you're going to see the baby let me tell you this news because at the time I was dealing with what that news was anyway. And Lori was like, no, they're going to come in. They're going to see the baby. If they think he has down syndrome or they think something, they can ask a question or they'll just, it'll, they'll find out it'll happen, but we don't have to announce all these things. So she was in many aspects. She's like your wife where she's letting Liam be Liam. Everyone else can just accept Liam for who he is and find out who Liam is. And then that's, that's Liam. I don't have to explain. Well, because that's what we do for every human. No, it makes sense. And it's I'm something it's just that... Not, it wasn't in me. Right. Like with Sophia, one of the things I teach her is... And something that helped me in life is, here's a person. That's that person. And we're all so, so different that to me, it blows my mind. I've met so many people that are so different. And a chromosome is not going to define my son. Because I've met people with different things that have been challenging to me, but I just, I allow people to be people. And then I see that person. I look for the best in them. And if it just doesn't jibe in my circle, I send them the best wishes. But, you know, then you have your circle. But, you know, part of the whole journey of life, which you do mention about us all being connected. And I do believe that is that we all create our lives. And I can't tell somebody just especially from looking at them, they're doing it wrong because I don't want them to look at me and, and I know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> Do you know, like, I don't need to turn that magnifying glass on me. And I've done that for my life. And so that's what I was going to do for my son. And if anybody doesn't want to do that for my son, then it is just like if you judge any other human, it's their immense loss. Like they don't even know what they're losing. Well, that's always how we, we felt about Jillian. Uh, if you choose not to uh, interact with Jillian, if you choose not to befriend Jillian, if, if, if for whatever reason you, you, you don't want to associate with Jillian, tough luck. That's, that's your loss. Not, not, certainly not ours and, and not hers, obviously. So I don't, I don't know. I, I, we've never considered her uh, any different from our son in the way we've demanded things of her, the way that, that, that that she interacts with other people. Um, everybody is unique. Everybody has their own syndrome in one form or another. And, you know, deal with it or, or not. 
we got enough going on in our own lives. We can't really worry about everybody else's. Right. So you like, you like Jillian, you get along with Jillian, you, you, you uh, decide to befriend Jillian. Great. If you don't, you're lost. Sorry. I don't think that people understand really what they're losing because of those misperceptions that are fed to us. Like we wouldn't, we didn't know. We didn't know when Liam was born, how just like the immense gifts you do discuss um, that you do say an imperfect child. And I think that's on the chapter that is about how you receive the news. But you say having a child with a disability is like having a life coach you didn't ask for. And that is spot on. That is so true. And not unwelcome, by the way. No, like you did. I mean, people pay a lot of money for life coaches. <laughs> and it, that's right. It, I, I think that's the best way to to say that. Like our, our friend Maisen has talked often about what a great, what a teacher, what is Liam teaching you? And that's all, all I do is learn how to live a better life and not like a better, like, oh, this is the best. I mean, like my life is rich and all I have to do is really you know, what is Liam doing? May then says, be more Liam. It's like, what is, how does Liam approach that? And when I do that, it's, it's just such a great guide. And I don't mean that in a hokey kind of, Hey guys, look what you have. No, no, totally. Just be there and witness it and follow their lead and example. Well, life coach for us. And you know, I see the benefits of his life coaching to Sophia. When you talk about milestones and how those can come a little slower and so maybe you ingest them a little more and they make an imprint in your memory a little more and impact in your life a little more. Sophia and Liam are only two years apart, but she's witnessed so many more of his milestones than she would have with a typical sibling. And I see the lessons that he teaches her without even knowing that. Neither one of them may know that that's happening. We call it the magic of slowing down. You have a child that, that's born with a disability, you really have no choice. Um, and that's been a great blessing to us for all the reasons you've stated. We, we, we like to think that we have slowed down to the point where we, we appreciate the smaller things in life. It's, as you said, it's not just another box to check. Uh, it's not just moving on to the next next. Um, and, and we, we've lived this crazy suburban lifestyle like lots of people have. We're empty nesters now, thank God, so we don't have to do that anymore. Uh, but you do spend a lot of time kind of chasing your own tail around. Uh, Jillian taught us to slow down, you know, take some time. And it wasn't because we were philosophical and wise. It was because we had to slow down. You know, she got everything that, that all the other kids got, like with the bike, it just took her a little longer. So if you want to teach her to ride the bike, you want her to ride a bike, then you got to take two months instead of two hours. And, and the beauty of slowing down, uh, for anybody who's done it any length of time, is it allows you to see the glory in, in the small things that you, that you take, either take for granted or don't take the time to appreciate well, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but just I you know I feel the same way. But just you saying empty nester is another thing that we would we would have been told was an impossibility uh, having this yeah. child. You know, Paul, if you just talked about Jillian and and how how she's out of your house, <laughs> I mean, that's a, big, <laughs> that's a big deal. Um, it's a very big deal. Um, I, I know I'm I'm repeating myself, but we always you know, ask why not? He never asked why. We, we didn't really, I, in, in a way, we were sort of naive in, in that we didn't think that she couldn't pull any of this off. We never assumed that, oh, she can't get married. We, we always assumed that she would. You know, we didn't think that she wouldn't go to college. Why not? You know, if she wants to go to college, let's, let's see what she can do. You know, that's applied to everything that, that we have done uh, with Jillian and for Jillian. Let Jillian define Jillian. Um, she started dating Ryan and when she was about 14, eighth grade. Eighth grade. They played on a, as the book says, they, they played on a, a soccer team for kids with disabilities. And uh, Ryan's father was a coach and Ryan and Jillian got to know each other while playing soccer. And then one day at the end of soccer practice, he asked her to go to homecoming. He was in ninth grade at the time. He was in ninth grade. Jillian was in eighth and homecoming. So he asked her and, and they were, they lingered across the field for a while. 
uh, talking with one another. And I wasn't there. Kerry was, was there for the practice. I was not. In fact, Kerry's there for most things that I was not there for and, and deserves a lion's share of the credit for every, everything that Jillian has become. I'm just there. I was just a guy around taking notes and, and paying attention and trying to back up mom's edicts. But anyway, uh, Ryan asked her if she wanted to go to homecoming. And, and the next thing Carrie knew, Jillian's running across the practice field. I have a date. I have a date. I have a date. And that was their their first date was homecoming when Ryan was in ninth grade. And, and they dated 10 years after that. Never, uh, never split up that I can recall and then got married because that's what people who date 10 years do, whether they're atypical, typical, or whatever, probably get married if you've been around somebody that you love for that long. And of course, they did trial runs with, with living together before they got married. So they had an apartment together for what, a year or two? Three, three years, eight. three years. Okay. It's my editor over here. Three years, they lived together before they get married and then just settled in. Now they, they're on their third apartment this is a place that had one of those places that has restaurants right around the corner it's an it's a new development where the 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 apartment went up first and then came the restaurants and and that sort of thing ryan works full-time jillian works almost full-time takes buses to and from work and so we prepared her to leave the nest because as i wrote that that's what every parent does for his or her children right we don't prepare them to live with us the rest of our lives. We either pre- prepare them to leave. And that's what we did with Jillian in every respect, same as we did with our son. And now they've been married for uh, six and a half years and are, 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 are doing splendidly. We had lunch with them just the other day. Yeah. So there, there you go. I don't know if that answered the question or not. No, it did. But it's something that, I, that we had to kind of adjust to the initial conversations that would come up with the diagnosis is that that's something to kind of, you know, we talk about checking off the list of milestones. That's something that we were told wasn't going to be on the list from the beginning, that and several things that you, you put in the book. And I think for parents, it's not, you know, just as far as like checking off the list and we're told that these are things that will not happen. I feel like that conversation is beginning to change. What I would like to see is that, you know, Jillian's married. Okay. <laughs> I just, I want it to be to where parents, we don't have these anxieties over just ordinary things. Like, why is it society interjects these worries over us that honestly, you, you, like you said, you could have a neurotypical child that decides to never be married and nobody cares. That's not, that's not a thing. But for some reason, we're meant to think it's a thing and that we should really grieve and feel really sad that this is just not a thing for our child. Our child may not want to get married. Or college. Tons of people don't go to college. Because they don't want to. (laughs) People don't want, they want to start working, they want to, whatever they want to do. We have uh, enough to worry about with kids in general. Why do we need to put all these stigmas on this one particular life? Like, there's no need. It's only limiting. We know that from history of people in general. You put someone in, in a box as a parent, you, you can limit that, that kid. The stay in the box. Yeah, I mean, it very well could happen. It's always uh, interested us because to us, it's just so common sense. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dream of trying to define your typical child. You wouldn't, have dream, wouldn't dream of saying to your daughter, well, you know, you're not, you're, you're not gonna go to college. Or, you know, you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know what I mean? We'd never. It's about it's about having the options, the same options we wanted for Kelly. We wanted Jillian to have the same options. She chose to go to college. And she chose to fall in love and get married. But the big thing was to have an option of that, like everybody else has. What she said. Thank you, Carrie. Thank yes. you, Carrie. Yeah, and, and it is. And I think and that's what this book shows. And that's the those are the great stories that. I hate the word proof, but it's just the other conversation of this is what we did. I love your I love your chapter about how you when you say you're preparing them to leave, how you went to they did they both go to the same they both went to the same college. No. Ryan Ryan did not. Oh no, yes, they did. I'm sorry. Okay. I thought you were talking about Kelly. Jillian and Ryan both went to Northern Kentucky University. They had 
they were one of two universities in the country that, that had this pilot program that encouraged kids with disability, intellectual disabilities, to attend college. And we regular lived classes. regular in regular ed classrooms. And, and we lived, you know, 30 minutes away. How lucky is that? Mm. You know? But yeah, they both they both went to NKU, Northern Kentucky University. I'd love to see more colleges have those because a lot of times what they do offer is not, it's it's not that it's something sure. other, which I think has a use and I think it's it's a step forward. But this is what I want to see is, and it's an inclusive environment at the college level, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jillian had to learn how to ride the bus to get there, changing twice a day, you know, four buses a day. She had to learn how to navigate campus and and if she couldn't find something. She had to learn how to ask people how to get places. She was completely independent once she got on campus. Where's this classroom? How do I get there? I'm going to have my lunch. Where do I go to buy a drink with go with my lunch? All of it. We thought that that was as important as the classroom education itself. Learning coping skills, how, how to get along, uh, how to survive on, on, a, on a college campus. And, and we thought that was very important. And again, we we allowed Jillian to define herself. We expected her to do her best, and we accepted nothing less. And and that's how it worked out. It worked out great. She got a degree. We love the examples that you set in this book, and and that you can spread that message. Lori sometimes says, "Man, I wish we didn't have to prove." You know that word "prove." I, I do see that, and I've said it before. Often humans need that. Often humans need to see someone do it first. It could be, like I had said, Sir Edmund Hillary getting to Everest. Once he did it, people started doing it. Now, thousands of people do it a year. So we do need that. We needed the four-minute mile broken, right? And then, man, everyone's doing it. There is a psychological thing there that uh, it's kind of torn there where it's like, why, why should we have to prove? But that, like this book, seeing someone else do it, it benefits all society and, and that community. Well, I think it's because the onus of proving, the weight of proving. And I think that if you live your life feeling that you have to prove, that changes the dynamic of how you do that. Like, I mean, Liam doesn't feel like he has to prove. I'm the one who felt like I had to prove for him. As soon as I took that away and just said, we're just going to live and do, and it will show. I'm not going to show you, but it will show and it will prove that you're wrong, but it's just that I don't think parents should have to feel that they have to prove that. And yeah, I'll go back right. to it because when every time we step into an IEP, it's not, oh, this is what we're going to do together to support so that, you know, just like we supported our other children, what, do, what else do we need to get to here to allow the same opportunity? It's prove that he deserves this, prove that he should be here. And that wears on a parent. But you have, you have proven it in this book. And that's why, but you didn't do it because you had to prove. You did it because you expected it, because you lived it. And now this is this beautiful memoir and ode to your daughter, just living a, just a beautiful life. But like you said, an uncomplicated life. It's, and the one thing I love, because it is your memoir and your memory of everything, is that, you know, you talk about teaching them, Jillian and her fiance at the time, to ride the bus. And the error wasn't on them. You had forgotten the quarters. You had forgotten the <laughs> bus right. You had. And, I didn't have exact change, yes. And a lot of times, I think for Liam, nobody wants to admit when they don't come up to the same bar that Liam's at. And that the failure may have been that we weren't right there with him. Because he then takes the, the fall for our failure. How patient my son is with me. How patient Jillian is with you as you are figuring out what she already knows. Yeah, Jillian thought it was very normal that, that she should help take care of me. Um, I think Jill, everything Jillian's done, she's expected to do. She, it's not like she, she's all proud of herself or, or beating her chest or anything. She's just... Everybody else does this. I can do this. She, in the past, she had a very good friend named Katie Daly. Now, and Katie and Jillian were thick as thieves. But when they were out at, at a fun social function, at a party or whatever, Jillian would introduce Katie as, this is my friend Katie. She has Down syndrome. As if Jillian was not someone with Down syndrome, you know? This is my friend Katie. She has Down syndrome. 
Well, Julie, you know, you have Down syndrome too. Oh, oh yeah. I don't think she thought anything she did was exceptional. I think everything she she did, she just assumed you're supposed to do it and she does it. I don't think she thought anything special about herself or yeah. what she was doing. Yeah. We did, but, you know, we recognized it was achievements, but she's just like, yeah, well, what's next? Well, we could all use that in our lives. I mean, just think of, of how we wouldn't hold ourselves back from doing things if we just had that mentality. Of ex- yeah. ex- expecting, not mm-hmm. accepting. I love that. That's mm-hmm. just what she did. And how and the power that we have as parents or gig- caregivers, families and friends is to just expect. Like we do from everyone, we, we expect. It was a great lesson from the book. I mean, that's why I had said before that this book... Not only Lori had said it should be in schools, it's definitely something that prospective parents should should read. Families. Anybody. Families. I mean, if you have a a child with Down syndrome anywhere in your life, read it. And if you don't, I mean, (laughs) it teaches lessons. It's actually just a good book. It's a great book. It's a great book, book. very well written, and and a beautiful story. And that's another another thing where it's just, oh, this is a book about Down syndrome. It's like, no, it's just a really good book. About life. About life. And it's so beautifully written, and it has a it has a lot shifting from, you know, Jillian's path, which I I do think that everybody should read it because we get we get bombarded when our child is diagnosed. We get bombarded so often with misperceptions. With from if if you don't have we have a great pediatrician, but if you don't have one of those who's constantly not expecting. Um, if you're at a school system that doesn't expect, you get enough of that negative where you're having to fight and prove and all of those things that make you tired. You're the this, only one expecting? That kind of stinks. Yeah, when you're <laughs> the only one expecting. Uh, but this well, That is sounds a, familiar. Yeah, yeah, this is a book that's just a beautiful book to say, hey, you know what? Just because they're loud doesn't mean they're right. You know, because I feel like our path is a little bit quieter because it is a slower, like we do take our time with things. I feel like, you know, except sometimes I do scream in IEPs, but I do raise my voice sometimes there. But because we don't have time, like you said, we don't have time to talk about you, the fact that you're, you're limiting yourself by not having my son in your life. We don't, we don't have all that time. So we're not, you know, we're focused on our family, on our, on our children. It's like food for your soul, for anybody for people who are not on this journey, it's eye-opening so you can stop saying that will never happen because never doesn't count anymore because one, Jillian's not the first to do it, but here, now it's in writing. <laughs> so it, all of these things are are real. Well, I wish you two had been, been around six years ago. You you could have been the publicist for the book. <laughs> I do. I feel, I feel like it's something that everybody should read because it's a. we don't get the beautiful stories. We don't, we really don't. The beautiful stories are usually coupled with this is horrible <laughs> or, or, you know, or, or it's they not, did this even though they suffer from Down syndrome. You know, it's not, it, this is just beautiful. And it's, and it's like, it's like that little whisper in your ear, you know, that's louder than the people who are telling you. Th- and, and this is, this is how I feel. The stories that were written for our children, for our, for this community were not written by us. They were written by um, a doctor a long time ago, an archaic doctor who used Mm -hmm. most of the words they used, you cannot say anymore. And they said, this is what it is. And somewhere along the line, we forgot to correct the story. Somewhere along the line, we let the outside tell us what our story was. We were fed a narrative that we just continued on our own. And we continued it, but we never stopped to ask, why do we believe that when right in front of us are individuals who are telling you, no, that's wrong. (laughs) That's not, that's not the case. And this is this is the real narrative. This is this is what happens. We have that influence. We have the ability to support our children in their education. We have that ability to support our children in their expectation of life. That expectation Jillian has comes from your expectation of her. If you told her no, if you said she wouldn't, if you believed what they said, she would not have this beautiful story. That is the truth. You know, that's with anyone. I can do it to my daughter. I can do it to anybody. I can see it from anyone. People in my life that were told not to expect anything. Well, they didn't. And they yeah, got what they expected. If you don't go expected. out onto the driveway and do the five fingers down with one finger and let her go. If you don't support her and do that when she asks to do it, then she won't do it. 
You're, I mean, like anyone, right? So then sure. all of a sudden it's like, oh, see, she couldn't do it. We would highly recommend that everyone who uh, has a child born with a disability do what we did on day two, which is take all the well-meaning literature passed out, even by folks from the local Down Syndrome Association uh, that, that collected in my, in my wife's hospital room. Uh, give it a once-over if you want, uh, and then throw it out. We recommend everybody do that. Um, I know it's well-meaning and it's supposed to help you and prepare you, whatever. Uh, nothing can prepare you, but it's also very negative, as you said. It, it, tell, it gives you a, a laundry list of, of all the can't-dos. Uh, in, in that respect, it's very damaging and, and worthless. And so we just got rid of it. I don't think, do we even read any of it? No. No, we didn't read any of it. We we're going to let uh, Jillian define the narrative. I can't imagine what that literature was in 1989. I feel like now we do have some narratives changing. So look at some of it because there are some organizations now that actually are starting to support our narrative. But yes, when you get when you get those pamphlets, when you get those stories about grieving your child, when you and they come from the best people, when you get those don't let them, yeah, don't let them sink in. That's, and I think that's what happened to us is we had, we didn't get pamphlets. We got some conversations that we were just like. Well, it was the age of the internet as well. Yeah. You know. But read this book instead uh, because it's the opposite of those pamphlets. And it's not, it's not like an onus on you. It's just like, hey, what, what happens if you just do exactly what you would do if someone didn't tell you you couldn't? And that goes for us as parents, but also as for our children. What would they do? One other thing I think is important, we, we operated from day two with a sort of tunnel vision. It really was one day at a time, because if, if you have an infant born with an intellectual disability and you immediately start worrying if that person is going to go to college, I mean, why? For one, why would you do that? And, and two, you have to worry about the moment, live in the moment, worry about the moment you know, each put a little building block on there every day for your, the, the, the ultimate goals. I mean, keep those big goals in, in the back of your head, but don't let them overwhelm you. You know, we're kind of like, kind of like sharks in the water, right? Don't sharks have to keep swimming or they sink? Well, we, we just kept swimming. Yeah. Yeah. Like you do with anybody, let the child and let the person show you who they are. Jillian showed you who she was. And that, that also needs to be said, all these big goals or big dreams, hopes, whatever we had for Jillian wouldn't have amounted to a, a hill of beans if Jillian hadn't been able to pull them off. I mean, we can sit there and, and do what I did, which is metaphorically bang my shoe on the table at the IEP meetings. And none of it would have mattered if, if Jillian had not justified our belief by doing well in college. So uh, in the end, it's, our beliefs are only as good as the way that she was able to validate them. And, and, and also, then this is important too. I, I don't want, and Carrie does not want us to come off as these perfect know-it-all parents. You know, here's your, here's your guide on how to raise your child with a disability. No, we, we, did it, we did it our way and other people did it other ways and that's fine. We don't, we don't judge how they raise their kids. And um, this just says, this is, it, the book does not say this is how you should do it. It says this is how we did it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because as par as parents of children uh, with disabilities, our, our friend Melissa Kynach was saying, you know, sometimes she gets in that thing where people will go, oh, you you did this. You're so great. Look at what you're doing. And it puts a pressure on you, not only on other parents, but it does. It puts a pressure. You're just a parent. You're right. just a parent who raised their kid. Your book doesn't say, hey, look what we did. We're great. We're best. Your, your book is a full depiction of who you are as a human. You know, it talks about your doubt. It talks about where you fall short. A beautiful chapter on a beautiful chapter in the fact that it's raw and I think people will relate and not judge themselves. You had the courage to sit and write down, you know, hey, Jillian was born and this is how you felt. And then the doctors came in with this news that was like a sledgehammer, the way they deliver and the, the way they shift the energy of it. And they take, you know, this joy that's, that has no weight and puts grief, which is heavy on you. 
and you're very honest about how you felt. You know, we can look back and say, oh, well, this or that. But just being honest about the, the fact that you didn't automatically, you didn't go, well, doctor, you're wrong. You felt those feelings. You had to digest those feelings. And you're very honest about it, which I think is cathartic for other people because we do judge ourselves. We judge ourselves and there's enough guilt as just parent, like right off the bat, any parent. But you talk about that and then you got through it and then you move forward. And so I don't think that in this book, you depict yourself as, hey, look how great we are. This is what we do. It's just, we're called If We Knew Then. I wish I would have read your book then. Because if I would have known that there's someone out there, even if it's just one person, like Sir Hillary, uh, it shows me that, no, you're wrong. I have that. I have that to go Mm -hmm. into any meeting, any story, and anything. No, hearing about all the great stuff is great. Hearing about the stuff that was really difficult is wonderful too and cathartic because we're all going through those difficulties. And you don't say, hey, look, this is what we did. And and um, I taught her to ride a bus and, and I'm so great. And this is how I did it. You say, <clears throat> this is what we did. And you know what? I'm the one who goofed up. And you because I think as soon as we got the diagnosis and those people were turkeys in the hospital. I mean, how can you save a life? Liam was born at 30 weeks, saved his life. And they, they were so brilliant with medicine and so ignorant in life and what Down syndrome was. And that ignorance just, it, it did take a hold of me. Um, it did make me shudder with fear, but it also made me dig in and just say, not going to listen to you at all. If I would have had this book, then that would have been some food for me to, to combat that. And also maybe not feel so alone about not feel alone, you know, not feel alone in your hope, you know, for a neurotypical child, we get all those what to expect books. We don't get those realistically. No, we're, we're, we get what not to expect. It's like, Mm -hmm. don't expect anything. What what not to expect. And that's anything. Don't (laughs) expect anything. And you know, but when I dug in, I was like, I'm never going to give up. I'm just going to support Liam. I'm going to, again, prove, show whatever it is. We're not going to, if Liam, I remember talking to Steve, I'm like, if he wants to go to Harvard, he can go to Harvard. He can go wherever he wants. And I was well. That's what you said when I said, "Will Will he go to college?" You go, "He's going to go to Harvard if he wants." You know that was that was how it went. But I remember like saying those words, and then I remember I was shown very early on that maybe TMI because we were told he would never nurse, so I pumped for a year, and then because he hit his head, he nursed because he was looking for like that. I can't. It makes me sad as a mom to go. How long did I? Did he actually was able to do that? That I just kind of just denied that. And I realized, gosh, I had given up on that. I had, um, it taught us a big lesson of what not giving up really meant. Cause we had said, we're never going to give up on them. And then we realized, wow, I this did. is one of the first like, things right, we yeah, did. One of the first things right off the bat, I had done that. And, and I think that you, sh- you show that. And also for parents that it's just being a parent, we're going to get it wrong. Sometimes we're going to get it right, but we are just an element, just like down syndrome is just an element in their life. We are only an element in their life. And we have this interjection. I think it's just that when we interject, we interject possibility, we interject expectation, because I think that's where sometimes we can miss the mark without expectation. I think that is the key. And that is the key to the story is the expectation and the not accepting what people tell us. It's the same thing that we give to, to any of our other children. Absolutely. What's amazing about it to me is that you had mentioned several times, Paul, that this is something that they came out seven years ago and, you know, hey, there was a spark and then it kind of goes and this, but it's there forever. It's here in my hands right now, what you wrote, right? At any time I want to pick this book up, your voice is in my, in my head. We can talk. And that's what's so beautiful about putting it in a book. It's, it's kind of the thought process we had about this old-time radio podcast medium, that it can be there, a log of episodes someone could just come across whenever they want. That's something I would like you to know because you have mentioned a couple of times that, well, you know, it's kind of, I'm glad it's back, but this is going to go through its forms of where it's going, but there will be people reading this book and getting wonderful benefits from it forever. No, I, I appreciate that. And, and you've made my wife chuckle a little bit because she knows now that my head will be too big to fit through the door of my office. So 
I'm, I'm, I'm a captive in my office now for, for several days, I think. Well, Carrie, maybe next time you'll just sit next and talk, because the two chapters that I wanted to talk about were how you both uh, had different upbringings and came together, but the effect that your life had on raising Jillian and about your honesty, receiving the news, and that they're, they're both two very healing chapters that I'd, I'd love to talk about, because I think they feed into the how we determine the narrative and how we write our narrative. Um, is there anything you want to add to this episode ab about the story? Do you want to do you want to add, you know, as far as any of the chapters or any of the parts of Jillian's life that you want to reference? Oh, specific to the book. Yeah, specific yeah. to the book. Um, the one chapter that, that isn't talked about a lot that, that I really loved writing was, was the one on, on Jillian's sense of humor, her, 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 her wit. And you, you, you have to have some intelligence, I think, to be funny. And Jillian is really funny, you know, um, and has made people laugh in, in all the right ways for a very long time. I, I, I love that writing the note to her classmate informing him that he was a dick. I, I thought that was hilarious. And, and you, you're in that parental moment where you have to try to be stern and no you can't be doing that but uh, in inside i'm just cracking up but we were proud because it was a complete sentence and we were proud that it was a complete <laughs> sentence in that note that she wrote to that guy you know when i when i used to speak in front of large audiences way back when the book first came out and you go to these conventions and this and that mm -hmm. state national whatever i i like those passages because they made me laugh and they made everybody else laugh and put everybody at ease and like, wow, these kids are funny and not funny in a bad way. They're just, they're, they're witty and smart and fun. And, and they say the word deck. And I, 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 I like writing that. That was a lot of fun, but I mean, other than that, you guys are pretty comprehensive in what we've talked about. Well, this is a beautiful book that I hope everybody gets to read because it's the narrative that is definitely the one that I believe in about expectation. And we look forward to continuing our conversation with you to find out more personally some of your solutions to IEPs and bridging that gap in the education system, getting your daughter all the way through college. That's something that I would love to, to know more about. Yes, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Paul and Carrie. Paul and Carrie. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for being here. And thank you for having the expectation. You paved the way. We all pave the way for the people who come behind us. And you paved the way for my son and for me. Well, we're glad to hear that. It makes it all worthwhile. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Carrie. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Amazon.